Welcome back to another episode of the Spooky Rip Jean Mom. My name is Peyton Kennedy, and I have a special guest with me. Gretchen Wolhofer. It's my mom! <laughs> I knew you'd giggle. And today, I have my very first ad. So we'll go ahead and just do that from the beginning. If you live in Indiana, kind of northern Indiana, and you have a summer project that you need a dumpster for, go ahead and look up Final Boss, ran by Derek Bullhofer. He will get you exactly what you need for the price that you're looking for. So you're probably like, Bullhofer? Derek Bullhofer? You have Gretchen Bullhofer? It's my dad! He started his own business, isn't that so cool? Um, so today we are talking about Indiana, which is why my mom's here. And we're Well, no, honestly, I'm here because I'm visiting you. Well, yeah, she's visiting, but it lined up with me having to also record Indiana. It was so. perfect. It was perfect. So we did it. Um, and Corbin was here for Illinois. Really no significance besides like a land for him. Yeah. But he liked it. Yeah. He seemed to have fun. Yeah. <laughs> He told me not to say these nuts. No! <laughs> anyway, sorry. People are going to either really like you, and I'm going to have to figure out how to, like, Skype with you so we can do more of these together, or they're going to be like, never have that crazy lady on again. I know. I know. Uh. <laughs> are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, go ahead. So we're talking about Herb um, Boymister, and he was born on April 7th, 1947, and he is from Indianapolis, Indiana. His parents are Herb and Elizabeth Boymister, and his dad was a doctor. I don't know how to pronounce Boymister. Oh, it's pretty close. Yeah. Baumeister. Oh, perfect. Didn't know I had Siri with me, but okay. (laughs) Sometimes I like to double as a mom and Siri. Yeah, we know. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So Herb was the oldest of four. It was him and then his little brother, Eric, and then his little sister, Emily, and then another little sister, Marie. And everyone said that he had a normal childhood until, like, fifth grade. And then he began showing signs of antisocial behavior. Uh, He played with dead animals. He peed on teachers' desks. Didn't know right from wrong, and he put a dead crow on one of his teacher's desk. That's bad. Mm, it is. It is. But then as a teen, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia and, you know, multiple personality disorder. So you'd think that his parents would give him the help he needs since, you know, he's got mental issues. What year was he born? 47. Okay. But they didn't. He received no treatment. Yeah. And, I mean, they're also from Indiana, so... Well, and mental illness wasn't at the forefront of everybody's yeah thinking. In Indiana, it's still a little wonky. Well, we're trying. We're, tr- we're trying. <laughs> um, so then in 1960s, he was, um, the electroconvulsive therapy was the most common treatment, and he was institutionalized, and shock patients would receive shocks multiple times a day, And it was not to cure, but to manage their diseases. And then in the 1970s, drug therapy replaced um, ECT because it was more humane and productive. 
they were able to lead normal lives, but it's unknown if Herb ever received the drug therapy. Uh. And they had him continue in public school. All Herb wanted, though, was to be friends with popular kids, um, and at that time it included football players and their friends as well as cheerleaders, and he believed if he couldn't be friends with them, he just wanted to be alone. So he finished high school with no friends. That's so sad. You can feel bad for him as I, a kid, I but do. not as an adult. No, no, no. I don't. Um, yeah. So then in 1960, he went to IU. So oh. that explains a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right there. We've solved the mystery. <laughs> Seriously. I hope that my friends in West Lafayette are hearing this. I hope my friends that if they went to IU didn't take this personally. It's just fun uh, banter. It is just fun banter. <laughs> we we yeah, it is. It really is. There's good things about IU. He didn't graduate from there because he dropped out of, after one semester. Oh he did? Yeah. What was he even studying? Does it say? Um he studied anatomy. <gasps> oh. Yep. So like Besides the school, it's really just piecing some things together. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Um, but his dad pressured him again, and he went back in 1967, and then he dropped out again after one semester. But while he was there, he met Juliana Sater, and she was a high school journalism teacher, and she was a part-time IU student. And fun fact, she is still alive. She is in her 70s, and I found her on Google and possible email addresses for her. Oh, wow. They have them, like, blanked out, same with the phone numbers, but you could kind of guess, like, what it would be based on her name and then the year she was born. Yeah. But it was wild. I was like, they just have this girl's information just out there. Did, did, did they know that she's... Well, I don't even know what she does. He she, met her. He met her. I don't know if they got married. They did. And okay. we'll find out later that she had no idea oh. what was going on. Um. They, she was a part-time IU student. They had a lot in common. They were extremely conservative. Again, Indiana, 1960s. (laughs) Makes sense. Um, They were both very entrepreneurial, and they wanted to own their own business. Um, So in 1971, they got married, and in in the six months of their marriage, Herb, um, Herbert, Herb's dad, had Herb committed and he found in a mental institution, and he was there for two months. Um, and then Herbert got Herb a job at the Indianapolis Star, where he ran stories to reporters and did other errands. But it was a low level. He it was like a low level job, but he was super eager about it. Right, which is good. That's a good start. Mm-hmm. So he was super eager, which means he was always trying to impress. Um, and he became obsessed with ways to fit in. It never worked, and um, he quit and started working for the BMV. Isn't it sad how how hard people just want to try and fit in? Just love yourself. Just just love yourself, people, and find the right group. It seems like he couldn't find it. (sighs) Um, So, at the news station, they said that he acted childlike, overeager, like if his feelings were hurt. He would show them, especially when he wasn't recognized for something. But at the BMV, he was bossy, aggressive. He lashed out because that's what he thought good management was. No offense, but that is the BMV. (laughs) 
He was described as weird, Gretchen Bullhofer, um, <laughs> erratic, and sense, his sense of behavior was just off. And one of his coworkers said that he sent a Christmas card to everyone at work with a, him and a man, both dressed in holiday drag. Oh. So it's the early 70s, and no one thought it was funny, and no one was accepting of it. And people started talking at work that he was gay, like still in the closet, and also crazy. Exact words from one of his coworkers. Um, so ten years later, he um, still has poor connections with his coworkers, but was being recognized as intelligent, a go-getter, and he produced results. At this point, then he was promoted to program director. So he's starting to get some recognition, mm-hmm. just not the friendly connections he wants. Right. Um, but then in 1985, he was fired. You won't say that when I tell you why he was fired. Okay, tell me. He peed on a letter from a um, from former Governor Robert D. Orr. Why the peeing? I don't know. It's never you never find out because he commits suicide <gasps> before you can even talk to him. You told the end already. Well, I mean, you can Google it to see if he's still alive. Oh, okay. I do that in the beginning of all the episodes that I listen to because okay. I'm like, ooh, how'd this happen? Yeah. Okay. Um. They, I remember when Orr was governor. You were only, like, you were literally, like, 13. Yeah, yeah, but I remember. You're really showing your age, right? I am. I am. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Anyway, continue. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, and they found out, so apparently for four months, someone had been peeing on the manager's desk. <gasps> it was him. And they found out it was him when they found him peeing on the letter. Like, I don't mean this to sound, like, really bad, but you know how, like, sometimes dogs pee to mark their, their territory? territory? So maybe he was, like, peeing on their desk to mark that he is supposed to be the manager and that's his desk. He's supposed to be in charge. <laughs> I don't think so. I'm just trying to figure out the peeing thing. I think he's just... I don't want to say crazy because he's schizophrenic, and you're not crazy when you're schizophrenic. Right. But I just, I think... I'm crazy. You are. Right. I just think something in his brain just didn't click right. Yeah. But you know what's kind of creepy? No. He looks, if you look him up, he kind of looks like Uncle Clint. (gasps) Yeah. No. Yeah. He does. One time I did a filter on Snapchat so I looked like a man and I looked exactly like I Uncle know, Clint. I know. It was really scary. But like it he looks like a beetle version. Not like a bug beetle, but like band beetle version uh, of Uncle Clint. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's weird. But after being fired, he went into fatherhood. So he had three kids. He welcomed the first one in 1979, the second one in 1981, and then the third one in 1984. Uh, and Juliana said that out of the 25 years of marriage, they had sex a total of six times. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And that'll play a big part coming up. So... The years that he had the kids matched up from when he worked at the BMV. Um, and Juliana had quit her job to become a stay-at-home mom. But she did return to work when Herb couldn't hold down a job. Uh-huh. So then he became a stay-at-home dad. And his kids said that he was really caring and loving. Um, but when That's they went good. to school, he had too much time. So he started drinking and going to gay bars. 
<sighs> which that plays a part in the future. So, in September of 1985, he was arrested for drunk driving, and they did nothing. It was just a slap on the hand. And then, uh, March of 1986, he was charged with stealing a friend's car and conspiracy to commit theft, and he beat those charges. Ugh. So, then he started working again, um, going between jobs, and he started working at a thrift store, and he thought he could do, like, way more with it. He thought that um, thrift stores had an amazing financial opportunity, and so he focused on the business for three years, just working at the same thrift store. Also during this time, Herb's dad died, and there's no record on how he, what, like how he took that. Um, but in 1988, Herb borrowed $4,000 from his mom, which today would be close to $10,000, and he opened up his own thrift store named Save-A-Lot. Huh. No, oh. Did you, have you heard of it? Save-A-Lot? Yeah. yeah. Haven't we heard of Save-A-Lot? I didn't until just now. But it's a thrift store in Indianapolis. There I've heard of Save-A-Lot. Yeah. So they were his. Oh, wow. Did you ever shop there? No. What about if you shopped there? What if I did shop there, but I did not shop there? <laughs> because we didn't live in Indianapolis. Well, I know, but we had, like, you had to go through <clears throat> Indy to get places. Yeah, but we didn't, you know, really. Go places. Yeah, stop. <laughs> Um, so they opened the thrift store named Save-A-Lot, and he sold used clothes, furniture, and other used items, but he also had a percent of the profit go towards the Children's Bureau of Indianapolis. Oh. He could have done a lot of good things with his life. Yes. If he had not turned to a killer. Right. Um, and his business did so well that after one year, in 1989, he was able to open a second location. Oh, that's good. In Indianapolis, though, Yeah. Right? Um, and that did so well, they ha- were actually able to stop living paycheck from to paycheck and were considered rich at the time. Oh, nice. Very yeah, good. Yeah, that's America's dream right there. Yeah. Um, in 1991, he moved to Fox Hollow Farms. Oh. And that's very important because it is, spoiler alert, his home is one of the most haunted in Indiana. Oh, man. <laughs> what if there's, like, a haunted trail or... A haunted tour of his house. Does somebody live there right now? No. I don't believe so. But it's probably murdered. Were there murdered people in there? Yeah. I don't I don't wanna haunt I don't want a haunted tour of that. You don't. You don't. You don't. It was in Westfield, which is in Hamilton County. Um it was extremely large and beautiful. It was a million dollar semi mansion and it had a stable as well as an indoor pool. Ooh. I don't So an indoor pool is interesting to me. I would love an indoor pool because you can swim all the time, mm-hmm. but you don't get any sunshine. Well, you can do what, like, people do in Florida where it has, like, it's like a sunroom, but it's just all glass. Yeah. The only yeah. hard part about Indiana is tornadoes and glass. Yeah. I don't know. I mean. But that's how they do it. Right. It's in the winter, and you're just out there. Yeah. Swimming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. While it's snowing. On While a snow it's snowing. Day. On a snow day. Yeah, instead of sledding. What are you going to do on your snow day? Swim? <laughs> Um, so Herb was considered very well-respected, successful, a family man, and he also gave to charities. So it seemed like he was starting to, like, get people in the community. Um, and Herb and Juliana were working together, and it did start to create a lot of stress, um, because Herb treated her as an employee, and he yelled at her without any reason sometimes. Uh. 
Um, and so Juliana, to make their marriage work, decided she was going to step back and leave all of the decision-making and business with her. But unfortunately, it still took a toll on their marriage. They argued even more, and they were on and off, separation-wise, for a, several years. Um, and people in the community said that save a lot was clean and organized. But they said that the house was not. Oh. Um, it had been, when they moved in, very well man- maintained. But as they had lived there over the past few months, it became overgrown with weeds. Um, rooms were always a mess. And housekeeping was a very low priority. It only they, they only seemed to care about the pool house. And that's where they kept the wet bar fully stocked. They had decor. And um, weirdly... Herb dressed the mannequins he had at the house up and positioned them around the pool like they were at a pool party. Oh, well. (laughs) So, Juliana and the kids would often stay with Herb's mom at her lake house in um, Lake Wawasee? Wawasee? Uh. I've never heard of that place before in my life. I haven't either. Okay. Well, if they say they're not right there. Yeah, but I think you're pronouncing it right. I hope so. <clears throat> um, and Herb never went. He stayed back to run the stores, in quotations. In 1994, his son was 13 at the time, and he was playing in the woods behind the home. And while he was playing, he thought he found a rock, and he picked it up and realized it was a partially buried human skeleton. <gasps> so he showed it to Julian, Juliana, his Whoa. mom. Whoa. And his mom showed Herb and basically was like, what the fuck is this? And Herb was like, oh, well, Dad used skeletons for his research and had found it while cleaning the garage. So he just buried it. Oh. Because Herb's dad was a doctor. Okay. So he said, oh, I found it in the garage and I thought it was weird, so I buried it in the backyard. And Juliana believed him. Love is blind. So nothing came about that. She just left it as is. And then after the second store opened, they began losing money because he started drinking at work. He also started acting belligerent towards customers and employees, and he he stopped taking care of the place. So it started looking like a dump. And at night, he would go to the gay bars, go back to the pool house, and cry about his failing business. Well... They don't drink so much. Clean up the business. Yeah. And Juliana never knew about any of this. She um, worried about bills. And um, she realized that Herb was acting strange every day. But she didn't really connect anything. Probably because she lived a majority of the time with his mom. and um, At the lake house, right? Yeah. And during this time, there was a major murder investigation. Um, In 1977, a retired Marion County Sheriff by the name of Virgil Vandergriff um, had opened Vandergriff and Associates, Inc., and he was a private investigation firm where he specialized in missing persons, and he was located in in Indianapolis. On June 1994, um, Alan Rossard's mom said that he was missing. He was only 28, and she last saw him when he was going to meet his partner at a popular gay bar, which was called Brothers. Oh. Yeah. Oh. 
um, and he never returned home. A week later, another mom called Virgil about her missing son. So in July, Roger Goodlett went missing. He was 32 years old, and he had left his parents' house to go to a gay bar in Indy, but he never got there. So, so do we think that he started drinking heavily before the murders or during the murders? Um, I think, I think from the timeline, he started drinking more before the murders. Um, I think he realized he was gay, but again, it's Indiana, 1980s, not very accepting, and I think he, I think he hated himself for it. Yeah. And so I think he killed people, killed gay men, and then did not, I don't think he felt good about the killings, but he also hated himself, and so he just drank more. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll, we don't, we won't ever know. Yeah. Um. So, Alan and Roger shared the same lifestyle. They looked very similar. They were very close in age, and they went missing going or coming from a gay bar. Um, so, Virgil went to all the local gay bars, and he handed out missing person files. He interviewed friends and family members, and a witness told Virgil that Roger had gotten into a blue car with Ohio license plates. Oh, Ohio. Yes, Ohio. Um, Virgil then received a call from a gay magazine publisher, and he had said that several gay men around Indy had disappeared over the past few years. Oh. So Virgil now believes that there was a serial killer. Uh-huh. Um, so he went to the Indiana Police Department, and basically, Indy's police department said that gay men were not a priority for them. Missing gay men were not a priority for them. Um, so then they tried to say that the men just left without telling their families so they could just be themselves without any judgment and um virgil found out that there was an ongoing investigation into multiple murders of gay men in ohio it began in 1989 and ended in 1990 the bodies were being dumped along interstate 70 um and media started calling them the i-70 murders but four of them were from indianapolis so what? Go ahead. No, I don't, I'm just trying to put, put the timeline and everything together. Keep going, keep going. Don't worry, we'll get there. Um, so finally, a guy came, um, called Virgil. He wanted to be completely anonymous, so they call him Tony. Um, and he was certain that he hung out with a person who was responsible for Roger's disappearance. Um, Tony had gone to the police and FBI, but basically they just shoot him away with all the info he had. Um And so, Virgil set up an interview with Tony, and this is what Tony told him. That he was at a gay bar, and he saw someone staring at the missing poster of Roger. Uh, Tony introduced himself. The man said his name was Brian Smart, and he was a landscaper from Ohio. When Tony told Brian more about Roger, Brian became very evasive. Uh, Brian invited Tony for a swim at a house where he was temporarily living in Indianapolis, um, and he was doing landscape for new owners, but they were out of town. So they were at the lake house. Mm-hmm. Okay. Tony said yes and got into the car with Brian. Brian's car was a Buick with Ohio plates. Tony was unfamiliar with Northern Indy, and he couldn't say where the house was, but he said that there was a house, like horse ranches, with very large homes throughout the neighborhood. Um, and the house he had gone into 
had a rail, like a split rail fence in front and a sign that read farm something. He couldn't remember all of it. And um, the sign was to the house that Brian had took him to. So then he said that it was a large Tudor home, which they entered through the side door. And then he said that there were packing boxes and furniture being packed. Like there were just packing boxes everywhere. Furniture was being packed up. Um, but Brian took Tony to the pool house. And Tony said that there were mannequins around the pool like it was a pool party. Oh. I would have ran. I would have been out of there so I know. quick. What was he thinking? What did he... I don't even like... I don't Obviously like, he lived though, right? Yes, Tony did live. But like... I, w- I was scared to go on a Marisa's with mannequins. Like, <laughs> to open? Yeah. And- <laughs> like, I would have bolted. I don't, uh-huh. I wouldn't have stayed. Yeah, mannequins are kind of scary. They don't have eyes. So are clowns. Oh, I know. I know. I hope we just didn't cause controversy. I don't think we did. I don't think anyone is comfortable with mannequins. Okay. Or clowns. Okay. I, th- I think those are very real fears. Yeah. Um... So, then Tony said that Brian had offered Tony a drink, and he had said no. Very important. Good for Tony. Very good for Tony. Um, so, Brian left, and he came back just a little bit more talkative, um, and Tony had believed he snorted cocaine. Which, when I read that, it reminded me of Raj on The Big Bang Theory when he can't talk to girls, so he has to drink a little bit. <laughs> and I was like, man, maybe that's a real thing. Um, so then at one point, Brian brought up erotic asphyxiation, um, which is receiving sexual pleasure while choking or being choked. Yeah. And he asked to do it with Tony, but with a hose. And Tony went along with it, but as Brian was choking him, Tony realized that Brian just wasn't going to stop, so Tony pretended to pass out. Oh. Um, and then Brian released the hose told Tony he was nervous and scared because Tony passed out. And um, Tony was way larger than Brian, which is why he's believed to have survived. Plus, he also refused drinks. Uh, Brian then drove and dropped Tony off, and they agreed to meet up again. Oh. Virgil had Tony and Brian followed at their next date. Um, But Brian never showed up. Wonder why. Well, we'll find out in a few minutes. Okay. <laughs> so, Virgil believed everything that Tony had told him, so he turned everything into the police. Please, okay. And then he also got a hold of a gal named Mary. She was a detective um, in missing persons and someone that Virgil really, really respected. Um, so, Mary drove to all the wealthy areas with Tony to see if he recognized any house, but they didn't find it. Really? Yep. So, then, a year later... Tony and Brian ran into each other at the same bar. At the same bar that mm-hmm. they were at? Yep. In Ohio. No, in Indy. In Indy. And Tony got his license plate number and gave it to Mary. Very nice. And when Mary ran it, it came back to Herbert Herbert Baumeister. Yes, I think that's it. Um, so Mary confronted him, went to his place of business. Save a lot. Yes. And was like, you're a suspect in the case of John Lee Bayer, who was 20 years old, Richard Douglas Hamilton, who was 20 years old, Steve S. Hale, who was 26, Jeffrey A. Jones, who was 31, Alan Wayne uh, Brossard, who was 28, 
Manuel Resendez, who was 31, Roger Allen Goodlett, who was 33, and Michael Frederick Kieran, uh, who was 46. I think I could really like Mary. I seem to like her already. Yeah, she's just really up there. Yeah. And I Googled and Googled and Googled all of the victims and could not find any sort of research, like, worthy things about any of these victims. Uh. Besides the ones that I, like, the two that I had talked about. Right, right. Um, so she advised him to let investigators, um, go through his home, and he said no. So, and told her to go through his lawyer next time. So Mary then went to Juliana, who was shocked, but also said no. So then Mary was like, fine, I'll get a search warrant. But Hamilton County refused to give her a search warrant. Um, they said that there was not enough conclusive evidence to warrant it. Because some of the people on the that were missing, that they thought were linked to him, were in Ohio. Uh. Um, so for the next six months, Herb had an emotional breakdown. And um, by June, Juliana had just hit her breaking point. Uh, the Children's Bureau uh, canceled their con- their contract with Save-A-Lot to get the deals. Uh-huh. Um, and Juliana filed for bankruptcy. She also filed for divorce. And then she told Mary about the school that their son had found, and then let police search her property. Oh, good, Juliana. So Herb and the son that found the school were visiting Herb's mom at Lake Wawasee, and um, Juliana called her lawyer because she's like, if you're going to search my house and you find something and he finds out from the news, I don't want him hurting my child. Uh-huh. So, um, in June of 1996, Mary and three Hamilton County police found what they thought were small rocks and pebbles, and when they tested them, they were human bone fragments. Man. Just all over their property. Oh, my goodness. June 25th of 1996, police and firemen began um, ex- excavation. Yes. Um, and found bones everywhere. Including neighbors' yards. <gasps> and early searches, they found 5,500 different bone fragments and teeth. Five, like, different teeth? So that means there were 5,000 victims? No, not 5,000 victims. Okay, okay, It just okay. means that, like, he, their bones had been broken. And, like, they had been... Like, pieces of them. The pieces of the oh, bones from man. the victims equaled... 5,500. Um, it was estimated to be 11 men. Only four men could be identified, and that was Roger Goodlett, Stephen Hale, Richard Hamilton, and Manuel Resendez. So now, Juliana and police are even more worried for their son's safety. Um, so Herb was served with custody papers demanding that their child be brought back to Juliana. And they wanted to make sure that it was served before the news hit about the all the bone discoveries. Yeah, absolutely. So her brought it, uh, their his son home with no problem, because he figured it was just a legal tactic for the custody stuff. He they didn't he didn't know that they had found the bones. Okay. So he delivers <clears throat> their child safely. You're fine. Everything's good, but then the discovery of the bones aired. And what happened then? Her vanished. Just vanished. Just vanished. Until July 3rd of 1996 when he was found in his car dead. Aww. He was found in Pioneer Park, Ontario, Canada, and he had shot himself. Oh, man. 
he had a three-page suicide note <gasps> just basically explaining that there were problems with his business he had a failing marriage and he never mentioned the victims in his backyard so he wasn't he wasn't even claiming responsibility no, in the end no nothing um so juliana provided receipts showing that herb was on i70 when bodies were found along the interstate um and the murder stopped when herb moved to box hollow farms where he could bury the bodies that's when they stopped? Yes. So they stopped finding the bodies along I-70 when he moved into Fox. Oh, I got it. I'm understanding so now. So instead of dumping them, he brought them back to the house. Oh. Uh. Uh, in total, they able to identify with DNA testing finally was John Bayer, Alan Brossard, Roger Goodlett, Richard Hamilton, Stephen S. Hale, Jeff Jones, and Michael Kern. As well as Manuel Resendez, and I added this in here because he was from Lafayette. <gasps> he was? Yeah. Oh. I know. That's so sad. I know. And it, he was. Three, I mean, it's all so sad. It's, it's all just, really sad. But yeah. He lived in our town, so like, we don't know if we know his family members right. or something like right. that. Yeah. Or a paths may have crossed at some point. Yeah. Yeah. And dental records were able to identify four out of the uh, four out of the eleven victims. Hamilton Hamilton County has donated fifteen to twenty thousand dollars, and relatives of the missing men have donated several hundred dollars to pay for DNA testings for the remains not identified. Oh, that's nice. In June eleventh, nineteen ninety nine, nine remains were returned to family members. Good. And investigators believed Herb picked. Herb picked up gay men, murdered them, and then burned and buried the bodies. On June 16, 1999, having found four more remains totaling the 11 men, 25 bone and teeth samples were sent to DNA testing, and some samples didn't have enough DNA to physically test it. Oh. Oh. Fox Hollow Farms became known as the most haunted house in Indiana because doors fly open randomly, inanimate objects move during the night, and there's been reported sightings of a legless man wearing a red shirt. Oh, my goodness. And that is Indiana's most notorious serial killer. Wow. Who was the I-70 killer. That's for just Ohio. crazy. Yeah. That's just nuts. Very disturbing. It is. And it, I think what's even more disturbing is we probably would know more about these people if he hadn't killed himself. Right. Right. And I, like, they, they don't even have everyone identified. No. It's very sad. It it was crazy. Yeah. I feel bad for the families. I do, too. And I feel bad for Juliana. I do, too. And the children. She had no idea. Yeah. I feel bad for all of them. Yeah. It's very sad. Yeah. Well, even though that was sad, this has been fun. It was really fun. We'll have to do it again when I come visit Indiana. Oh, Sorry yeah. Sorry for that loud noise. My chair yeah. is, like, banging all over the desk. We can we can do another one. Yeah. Of something. I mean, I'll be there for a whole month, so it'll probably be... Maybe we could do something haunted in Indiana. Yeah. We're, we won't go to it, though. No. No. I'm too much of a baby for that. Yeah. Like, I liked finding out after I ate at Pugin's Porch that Pugin's Porch was haunted, and I didn't know when I went to eat there. That 
was. I just right. imagine that everything in Charleston's haunted. I pretty much do too. Like yeah. I just walk in expecting to see a ghost, and then yeah. the waitress is like, "I'm real," and I'm like, "Oh well, what a surprise." Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, they don't introduce themselves as "I'm real." Well, you never know. You just they kind might of, have to. Yeah. Yeah. But you just yeah. kind of like lovely, like, "Oh, you're so nice." Like tap them on the arm to make sure you're like they're don't not fall transparent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, signing off. Yeah. All right. I'm always really bad when it comes to signing off. I'm like, okay, bye, I love you. I know. Because <laughs> I never know how to sign off. But I love that part. I love all of the parts. I love all Thanks. Yeah. I'm trying to not say um as much. You, you did very well. Thank I you. I thought you did really well. Because the last time I, like, the podcast I recorded before the one with Corbin. Yeah. I can't remember which one that was. I think it was the Honolulu Strangler or something like that. I think no. we just got done with that one. I feel like that it was a different one. It was my Idaho one. Yeah, it was my Idaho one, the fly trapper lady. Um, when I was recording and I kept saying um, and then I paused it so Bailey could come in and grab his laundry, and he was like, "You were you said um a lot," and I I re-recorded what I had said, and so now if I think I'm gonna say um, I'm like uh. <laughs> Well, I try to do a thought process. <laughs> I thought you did good. Thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I will see you guys on the next episode. I think it's going to be John Wayne Gacy part three. Ooh, three parts. It's a lot. Yeah. He killed 33 men. Wow. Yeah. Um, so it's definitely like the first one with Corbin was really just like his background and when he started, not his, like, we did the first two killings. Uh, the one that I'm about to record, because <laughs> we're recording this one first, but this one, the part two will be posted before this one. I got yeah. Um, Is more about all the killings and how he gets caught. And then the third one is his trial. And it's really long. There's a lot. Okay. So. All right. See you on part three. Love you. Bye. Did you want to say anything? Love you. Bye.